All right. Well, again, uh, welcome uh, to Genesis, uh, especially if this is your first, second, third time and you've been uh, coming just to see who we are and what we're doing. Uh, we are a brand new church in many ways. We just launched and got started this past uh, September. Uh, I'm not sure how you found us, but I'm certainly glad uh, that you did. Uh, one of the things that I was very excited to uh, just share with us as a community uh, today is um, uh, this might be new to some of you, but uh, Genesis for the past, uh, better part of the past year, uh, has been working in partnership with uh, a network called Acts 29. And Acts 29 is a church planting network. It's not a denomination. It's a network of just other churches that uh, work together to support one another, share resources, encourage one another, challenge one another. And uh, one of the things that if you want to be part of the network is... Um, you have to go through uh, the pastor as well as just the church itself, a pretty thorough uh, assessment process. And so over the past year, we have been a church, and myself um, uh, as a pastor has been in the candidating phase, uh, meaning they've put some requirements and some conditions on us and me personally uh, as a church. And so over the past year, we've been uh, slowly <laughs> uh, working on those conditions and requirements. And uh, actually this past uh, Friday, this is the email that I got from uh, the folks at Acts 29. It says this, uh, it is a privilege uh, to be the first to welcome you into full membership uh, with the Acts 29 network. Uh, the Lord is obviously working in Genesis, and we are excited to partner together to see the gospel transform your home, your church, your community, and your city. Uh, so we went from uh, being a church that was just candidating with this uh, network uh, to being a church that is now uh, a full-fledged, card-carrying uh, member as it was. Um, again, I realize some of you might not be like, that, what difference is that going to make in my life? Um, well, it will make a big difference because God is doing some really significant things uh, with and through this network, and our church is partnered with them. And uh, just like Acts 29 believes uh, that God is using them and the churches within this network to do great things, we as a church uh, believe uh, that God wants to use us, specifically you, this community, uh, to, I, I like how they said it, to transform homes, church, community, and city. Uh, right now, the numbers, uh, roughly, there are about 210 churches uh, that are full-membered churches within Acts 29. Uh, we are the second church in the state of Massachusetts. Uh, there are a lot of churches in Texas, in the Midwest, uh, out in the Pacific uh, Northwest. Uh, so there's not many Acts 29 churches, as there are only actually six in the New England region, meaning six churches in the six states that make up New England. So there's not many of us, uh, but those of us that are part of this network are really excited and believe that God wants to do great things to reach uh, this New England community, this New England uh, culture. So uh, we're right around number 210, 211, uh, there's another 85 or so churches that are in the candidating phase like we were. Um, and this is a number that was very encouraging to me, is 98.4% uh, of Acts 29. They just did this study after a few years of looking at the churches in the network. Uh, if you're a church plant, which we are, uh, the survival rate uh, is 80% of churches shut down within the first two years, meaning it was a good idea, but it wasn't God's idea uh, resources ran dry. It just didn't work for whatever reason. Church plants fail at an incredibly high rate. Uh, so the number statistically is against us, as it were. 
but the churches that have partnered uh, with Acts 29, they've seen a 98.4% viability rate um, after uh, the first two, three years. Uh, this is not like a guarantee by any means. Uh, this is just to say this is a network that really believes in church planting, supporting and encouraging churches, especially uh, in their initial stages. So I have a coach uh, that specifically works with me to challenge me, encourage me, hold me accountable. Uh, tomorrow, I'm going to be up in Troy, New York uh, with all the other Acts 29 pastors. Uh, they're talking about basically what God's doing here uh, in New England. Um, some have asked, what does uh, Acts 29 mean? Well, there's only 28 chapters in the book of Acts, and so Acts 29, as the tagline goes, is the story continues, uh, meaning God is not done working with us, through us, and through his church uh, to reach people. And so Acts 29 just simply means we believe that God is at work uh, in our homes, in our communities, and in our cities uh, for the sake of the gospel. And I don't talk about this enough, and um, I was feeling pretty convicted about this, but uh, you need to know this is who we are as a church. Uh, we're not looking just to survive. We're not looking just to maintain. We're not looking just to entertain one another, and hopefully we'll get a little bit more spiritual along the way. Uh, we are going to aggressively do the best we can by God's grace to reach as many people as we possibly can and as he'll introduce us to. We really believe that God wants to use you and this church uh, to reach a city. And certainly, I, I do believe God wants to use us to, um, uh, to transform, uh, to encourage, to love, and serve the city that we're currently planted in, in Woburn. Uh, but part of this network and part of who we are, and you just need to know this, is this, we're going to do this again. And some of you, uh, that's going to be on you. Some of you, God's preparing you right now to be part of the next church plant, uh, to be part of leadership that will take and count that cost to say, I want to be one who will go out and be sent to plant another church. Uh, we really believe this. We're not looking just to keep the 75 people, 100 people that we have. We want to continue to reach as many people as we can because we believe that nothing matters more than the gospel. So I just want you to know that. Uh, that's who Genesis is. Uh, our purpose has been summed up pretty simply, but profoundly, hopefully. We're going to love Jesus and make a big deal of Jesus, and we're going to love people. And we see that the most loving thing that we can do for people is introduce them to Jesus. And we see that our mission, you see signs all over the place that just says, begin, belong, believe. Meaning we want to reach people. We want to introduce people uh, to Jesus. We want them to know that God loves them, cares about them, and desires a relationship. We want people to begin that relationship. And then we want to connect them in a community that will encourage them and challenge them, train them, and equip them to be missionaries, to see their lives as, I am on mission, I am sent by God uh, to love him and to love people. And then you see that last word, believe, is that because of what God's doing in our lives and the life of this church, transformation would happen. Like the cities and the homes and the places where we work, the relation, it, would, it would be different. God would be using you and using us to transform a culture. Um, I apologize uh, to you that I, I don't talk about that enough. Uh, but just when I got the email on Friday, I was really challenged and convicted of, are we just going to talk about doing this? And are we just going to talk about church planting, but then never pray into that and press into that? 
and God really convicted me. We planted a church uh, to love as many people as we could and introduce them to Jesus and help them grow in that relationship. And that's what we, who we are, and that's what we're about, and you just need to know that. Um, a question that I wanted to ask is, how do you do that? How do you reach a city? How do you reach a people that are largely indifferent to God? Meaning, if you just surveyed your own world, meaning where you live and operate and work, if you were just to take a quick survey, how many of the people in your immediate circle of influence know God? And how many of those people that you're even thinking about even care? So how can we, a small community right now, how could we actually have an impact on a large scale um, in our city, in the towns where we live? Love people. That's a good, good start. Serve people. That's good too. Uh, be generous. Be available. Build relationships and bridges. All of those things answer the question with a very profound and powerful yes. We need to do those things. Uh, one of the seminaries that I went to um, in the early uh, 2000s uh, was a seminary founded by a man who just, was, who just was filled with passion for God, and he loved God, and he loved people, and he just could not stop introducing people to Jesus. And his name was D.L. Moody. And it was fun being in the halls of that school, just seeing pictures and revivals and quotes from him, and one of the quotes uh, from Mr. D.L. Moody says this, and this is the question, how can we reach a city? He said this, every great movement of God can be traced to a kneeling figure. So if you were to just examine some of the great revivals and some of the great things where people look and be like, that is such a God thing, what's going on? In the shadows, you would see some kneeling figures, some people who were just had bended their knee, not to false gods, but to the right God, to Jesus, praying that Jesus would do something significant uh, in their city, in their town, in their home, in their life. Every great movement of God can be traced to a kneeling figure. What would happen, this is a dream question, but what might happen if there was an entire community of people convinced, and I mean convinced at a conviction level, not just, oh, that would be a great idea, but if there was an entire community of people who firmly believed, were convinced that God wanted to use us uh, to reach an entire city of people and introduce them to Jesus. What if there was a community that was absolutely convinced of that, and then they were utterly committed to bending the knee? Meaning, if they were committed to taking the posture of one who kneels. Not just once in a while, but bending the knee, as it were, uh, and praying for God to do what only God ultimately can do. I would love to find that out. I would love for us to be convinced that God wants to use us to reach a city, and I would love for us to be committed individually and corporately, meaning as a community, to bend our knee. So that when people see what God does in Woburn, surrounding towns, what God does in Boston, and I do believe if you impact Boston, your influence will be so much greater because of the influence Boston has nationally, internationally, they will be like, how did that happen? And in the shadows, there would be a community of people on bended knee. It wasn't us. It was totally a God thing. 
that we could look a year, two years, five years from now, many churches planted. How was that possible? It wasn't us. It was a God thing. We did nothing but bend our knee and trusted God with everything else. I want to pray, and uh, specifically this morning, uh, we're going to finish where we stopped last week, and we're talking about prayer. So Father God, I just pray that we as a community would be convinced at a conviction level that you do desire to use us as a church to reach the multitudes. God, that there would be so many people who would come to know Jesus because of you at work in our lives, you at work in this community. God, I pray that we would be courageous enough to bend our knee, that we would not just jump into hyperdrive mode and work really, really hard and get really, really busy, but we would bend the knee. God, that takes courage uh, to bend the knee, and I just pray, God, that we, we would. God, I pray that this morning as we look specifically at what Jesus taught his disciples and the crowds, ultimately us, about prayer. God, I just pray it would resonate deep within us. We pray that in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so last week I, I made pretty clear, uh, if you weren't here, made a statement as simple as uh, motives really are a big deal. They matter to God. Like why you do what you do, it might not matter to you as much, but it really matters to God. I shared two verses, Proverbs 16. All a man's ways seem innocent to him, but motives are weighed by the Lord. And then I went on to share a verse in 1 Chronicles. This is King David talking to his son, young son Solomon. And you, my son Solomon, acknowledge the God of your father. Serve him wholeheartedly with devotion and with a willing mind. For the Lord searches every heart and understands every motive behind the thoughts. If you seek him, he will be found by you, but if you forsake him, he will reject you forever. The Lord searches every heart, understands every motive. I get confused sometimes by why I do what I do, but God can look deep within my heart and he's not confused. He knows the motivation that drives me to do what I do and act like I act, talk like I talk. Last week, we looked at... Uh, a community of people uh, known as the religious leaders, the Pharisees, who their heart was they really wanted to impress people. So the first century, and I do think it's much like today, um, there are people who want to appear spiritual. And they want to have that reputation, especially in the church, of I'm a spiritual person. Uh, in first century, if you were going to be spiritual, the righteous acts that you would do would you'd give to the poor, you would give to the needy, that's called almsgiving. Uh, the second thing you would do is you would pray, and the third discipline or righteous act would be fasting. And Jesus gave them a warning. Don't do any of those things as a way to be seen by men, meaning don't give and don't pray and don't fast in hopes that you will appear to be spiritual. And people will look at you and be like, wow, you are the most righteous individual I've ever met. You are so spiritual. And then Jesus says, if that's your motivation for doing that, you'll hear this. An applause for a bit, but then it will slowly fade. You wanted the applause, you got your applause, that's all you get. There's void of God. God's not in that. 
And if your motivation is to somehow impress God, that guy would look at you and be like, wow, can't everyone just be like you? You are so spiritual. You should just be the poster child for Christianity. If the motivation is to impress God, God's not impressed. He actually looks at the people who do that and says, you are a play actor. You are what's known in Scripture as a hypocrite. Huge difference between playing spiritual and being spiritual. Uh, One of the things about spiritual disciplines, acts of righteousness, that we really need to be careful, whether it's Bible reading, whether it's prayer, whether it's fasting, whether it's even giving to the poor, is that we must be on guard against those things actually replacing my relationship with Christ. Meaning I have more of a relationship with my Bible, more of a relationship with prayer than I actually do with Jesus. I just care more about prayer, care more about Bible, care more about this, care more about the discipline, making sure that I'm doing that, but I'm doing those things completely void of a relationship with with God. Okay, I'm going to try to cover a lot uh, today uh, because Jesus talks specifically about prayer and fasting. One question about prayer that just drives me nuts is when people ask, hey, how's your prayer life? Because I've never had an answer that was like, oh my gosh, it's amazing. It's so good. You should do what I do. I've never been able to say that. The second someone asks me, I just get hit with a sense of guilt, a sense of shame. Like, I know it's not what, how did you know it wasn't so good? I just I was asking, I just get hit with this sense of, you know, your prayer life is not what it should be. And so I don't want to ask that question because ultimately I don't feel like it's actually a good question. The question I wanted to ask is, what role does prayer currently play in your life? And that there's a difference. When you ask, how's your prayer life? I jump immediately into performance prayer. Meaning, oh, I'm not performing enough, or I'm not doing enough, or I'm not praying long enough. That's, that's what that question draws out of me. But if you were just to ask the question, not what's your prayer life, you know, how good is it? Just what role does prayer currently play in your life? Okay, to answer that question, two options, okay? What you do and how you live is born and then bathed in prayer is option one, meaning your life is really a reaction to prayer, meaning you pray and then you move, meaning you pray and then you react, meaning you pray and then you speak, you do. So that's option one, that's the role of prayer. The second one is you move and go and operate and then somewhere along the way, you ask God to get involved once you've lost your way, backed yourself into a corner or just you have a need you can't meet. So what role does prayer currently play? Not what you like it to play, but is your life really lived as a reaction to what you got in prayer Or is your life really, I do, I say, I speak, I go, I operate, and then I just get way over my head, I get confused, lost, and then I go searching God out and be like, how did this happen? And God's just like, gosh, I'm confused too, I'm not sure. So which option better describes you? If you're honest, um, I'm guessing most of us would say probably option two that we live, we move, move, we say, we speak, 
And then somewhere along the line, when we get over our heads, we decide to get God involved. And I think what Jesus is teaching us about prayer is it should be really option one. The role of prayer in your life is let your life be lived as a reaction to what you heard, what you saw, what God revealed to you in prayer. And then you go, not the other way around. This is what Jesus says about prayer. When you pray, this is Matthew 6, verse 5, when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites or play actors. For they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by men. I tell you the truth, they've received the reward in full. Okay, so Jesus is not saying, never be seen praying. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, don't pray in order to be seen. Okay, the message is not, don't ever get caught praying. Just don't pray in order so that people would see you and be like, wow, you are a prayer, prayer, or however you say that. And they would be impressed. Jesus says, if that's you, if you pray to be seen as super spiritual, you are a hypocrite, a play actor. Behind that is you have a theatrical faith, not a genuine faith. So I guess a good question is, how do I know if my prayers are really more to be seen? This is especially talking about in a public setting. How do I know if I'm that individual Jesus talks about, Matthew 6, 5? Meaning my prayers are really more about people, what they think of me, than God. When you're praying, do you wonder and think about questions like, how do I sound? Will will people think I'm theological? Will they think I'm biblical? Will they think I'm profound? Or will they think I'm prophetic, poetic, emotional? Will they think that I'm this passionate person? So when you're praying in a group, whether it's like at a life group or even in a church setting or at the well, when you're praying publicly, are those the thoughts that are going through your head? How do I sound? Or how will I appear? If I say it like this, will they think I'm really passionate about God? If I raise my voice, will people think that I have some great passion for God? Or if I actually get down on my knees or if I lift one hand up here and the other one down here, or both. Like, will people, what will they think of that? Another good question is, are your public prayers, do they mimic your private prayers? Because they should. It's very interesting. Um, I've, I can pick on other pastors. Uh, it's weird when I pray with pastors, like privately, and it's just two brothers praying, you know, talking to God, and, uh, and then I, I see them on stage sometimes, and they start praying. I'm like, who are you? Like, they get pastor voice. They, don't, they pray publicly in a way that they don't pray privately, and it's confusing to me sometimes. It's like, like <laughs> there's pastor public prayer guy, but then there's just the guy who prays with me. Like, it, there's a disconnect, and there shouldn't be. So the question is, how do I know if my prayers are really more about being seen? If you heard some of those questions, like, that's me, then you might be erring on the side of having prayers and praying prayers in order that people would actually be impressed. This is really the question of what's my motivation for praying? 
For the Pharisees, they wanted to be seen. Morning, afternoon, and evening, there would be a call to prayer. And so when the bell sounded, as it were, they would make sure that they had positioned themselves in the public corners in a very public place so that people would see them. And then they would put on a show. And people would walk by and be like, wow, I'm terrible. I could never pray like that, so I might as well never even try. They're so spiritual. One of the things that it says in verse 5, it says, and when you pray, meaning Jesus assumes that we will pray. It's actually a command that we will pray and should pray. But Jesus assumes, and and when you pray, don't do it like this, and he's going to give us an example of how we should pray. But I don't want to assume that we do pray. So I think by and large, most of us, the role of prayer in our life is, is, is small, is the second option. So why don't we pray? Too busy, this is my list, too busy, don't care, don't need to, don't know how, it's too hard, it's too scary, prayer goes as far as the ceiling, meaning it doesn't really work, it's weird, it's awkward, it's uncomfortable, or I don't know why I don't pray. I don't have a reason. I just don't. Jesus assumes that we will be people who pray. I can look at that list of 9, 10, 11 things, and those might seem like good reasons of why I don't pray, what keeps me from praying, but I love that just Jesus gives me one reason to pray that trumps all the rest. Verse 6, but when you pray, go into your room, close the door, Pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. Secret prayer to God, who is Jesus refers to as Father. Secret prayer to God, my Father. He's unseen to me, and no one else can see me, but he sees me. He not only hears me, but he sees me in my secret, private place where I can't see him and no one can see me, he's got perfect vision of me. He's got perfect ability to hear me. And the motivation that trumps all of the other, then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. We talked about reward last week. This is not reward of, you've been so good, here's a cookie. The reward is God, that we get to be with God, that we get to connect with God. What is secret prayer? Okay, This is not where you interpret Scripture um, in a very legal... Well, that means I, I go to the closet in my house, and I pray in my closet. Well, maybe, but I don't think so. Because most people in the first century had one room. They didn't have like closets and bathrooms and you know, family rooms, living rooms, dining rooms, great rooms, TV rooms. They didn't have a choice, okay? So I don't think Jesus is saying that you, know, you find that most secret place in your house where no one else knows, and that's the place where you're supposed to pray. So what is the secret place? What does that mean? And then just sitting with this, what is that? The secret place is praying when no one else would expect you to be praying. 
the secret place is praying in places where people would have no idea that you're actually praying right then and there. Meaning when you're at work, I'm not talking about making a big, loud voice on a megaphone of, listen, co-workers, I'm about to throw it down. It's literally sitting at your desk, and as you're doing your job faithfully, you're in communion with God. You're praying to him. Whether you're driving in your car, someone thinks you're talking on the phone. No, 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 you're praying. When you're working out, and again, this is not, you're not audibly shouting for people to notice this. Just when you're working out, when you're playing, when you're going about your day, it is one continuous time of prayer. There's a a great monk who wrote a book a couple hundred years ago, Brother Lawrence, and the book was just titled Practicing the Presence of God. And his whole goal was not to go a minute without thinking about having a conscious, aware thought of God. And so he began this journey of how can I turn every moment of every day, every action, every work. I work, he worked in a kitchen. How can I practice God's presence? And he discovered it was through prayer. The secret place is not some weird place in your house that is a closet. Because you could actually do that in hopes that someone would find you and be like, oh, you're in your secret place. Wow, I don't have a secret place. Um, I have to buy a new house to get my own secret place. Like, that's not the point. The point is the secret place, that private place is praying in moments throughout your day where no one would expect you to be praying. I can be having a conversation with someone and still be listening and talking to God. And you know why it's so important to have secret prayer, practicing his presence? Is I respond to people so much better when I'm praying. I actually listen to people better when I'm praying. It's kind of a unique thing. You can hear and talk to someone, but still hear and and talk with God. And his voice informs what I should do, what I should say, and what I shouldn't say. That's the secret place of prayer Jesus is talking about. Matthew 6, 7, he goes on to say, And when you pray, I love Jesus. When you pray, do not keep babbling like the pagans for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Have you ever prayed and thought to yourself, if I just say it longer, or if I just throw in a couple like theological words, if I just say it with a little bit more passion, and rather than just doing 10 minutes, I do 30 minutes, God will look at me and be like, wow, that was impressive time of prayer, Michael. Two gold stars instead of one. The thought was, if I pray harder, if I pray longer, if I pray with bigger words, God will be impressed, and I will get him to do what I ultimately want him to do. Jesus says, there is no need to babble or ramble on in prayer, okay? Jesus is not making the point that he prayed throughout the night, so this is not the point. You can have long, extended times of prayer, Okay, Jesus did that. We should do that. What Jesus is saying is, don't be fooled into thinking that the length of your prayer will somehow impress God to give you what you want. Like, length does not matter to God. Your words don't matter to God. It's a heart thing. 
I could pray all night and ramble and babble and babble, and God's not pleased with that. He's not like, oh, okay, I'll give you what you want. But I could also pray and say three words throughout the entire night, and it was such a refreshing time because I connected with God. He goes on, do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. This is weird. Your father knows what you need before you ask him. The obvious question, why do I ask him then? What's the point? If he already knows what I need, then why am I asking him for it? Why doesn't he just give it to me? This is a really important question. If God ultimately knows what you need, then why do you need to pray? Why do you need to ask him? I wrote it down like this. Prayer is not getting things from God, but getting in communion with God. I want you to catch this. I tell him what he already knows so that I can get to know it as he does. I tell him what he already knows so that I can understand what he knows, that I can have his perspective on what he knows because so much, so many of us do not have God's perspective. That's why we pray. He already knows, but guess who doesn't know? You and me. And in prayer, God reveals that to us. His heart, his perspective, his understanding. Jesus says, don't be like the hypocrites and the pagans who pray to be seen and pray in order to manipulate God. Pray in secret. No matter where you are throughout the day in those most random moments when no one would expect you to be praying, be praying and pray with less words and more heart. The Lord's Prayer. This is a prayer uh, that is very famous, and it's amazing. If you're really not careful with it, you can just say it and speak it and never pray it. How many times have we said what's known as the Lord's Prayer? It's really not Jesus' prayer. It's what he taught his disciples. We can actually pray it, and it's just words. His intent was not to say, this is the only way you can pray. You have to use these exact words. Jesus was not only instructing, teaching us how to pray, but now he's going to model what it, what it looks like. He says this, Matthew 6, this is known as the Lord's Prayer. This then is how you should pray. Remember, against the backdrop, don't do that. Don't be like them. Be quiet, be in secret. And he says, these are the words. This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. That's what's known as the Lord's Prayer. There's really seven petitions, three for God, four for us. Your name, your kingdom, your will. Give us, forgive us, lead us, deliver us. Kind of if you were to study and break the prayer down in actual words, seven petitions. Your name, your kingdom, your will, give us, forgive us, lead us, and deliver us. Andrew Murray, who um, uh, prayed a lot and wrote a lot on prayer, uh, said this, while we ordinarily first bring our own needs to God in prayer and then think of what belongs to God and his interest, 
The master, meaning Jesus, reverses the order. First, thy name, thy kingdom, thy will. Then, give us, forgive us, lead us, deliver us. In true worship, the Father must be first and must be all. I'm not going to have... What am I going to do here? I mean, you could do so much on the, on the Lord's Prayer and all of these different phrases. So uh, I'll take a crack at going through some of these. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Our Father in heaven, a very balanced gift, okay? God is not your cosmic buddy, okay? One of the things that Jesus teaches us is God is Father, but God is in heaven. We have intimacy with God, but it's married to or coupled to his infinite greatness. Jesus is not my homeboy. God's not my cosmic buddy, not my celestial teddy bear, that when I get scared, I can just run to God and he'll stroke my hair, not much of it, but, and be like, it's okay. No, God is my father, but God is in heaven. This is what uh, J.I. Packer, uh, who is an author, pastor, theologian, in a book called Knowing God, he says this of the fatherhood of God. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. How well do you understand Christianity? J.I. Packer, and I'm not going to disagree with with J.I., if I miss the fatherhood, if I miss God as father, I'm really missing Christianity. I'm misunderstanding who God is and how God's revealed himself. God has revealed himself as a father but as a father who is in heaven. He's not a deity who is just very far away. When it says, hallowed be your name, what does that mean? And simply it just says, treat God as holy. His name is holy, meaning he is holy. Meaning the way that I live my life is I see and I understand and I know God to be holy. Does my life reflect his name, meaning his holiness? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus prays this in the garden. In his moment before he goes to the cross, he's begging, he's pleading with God. And then he just says, he prays, God, your will. Your will be accomplished, your will be done. I love how it says, uh, be done on earth as it is in heaven. In heaven, nothing gets in the way of God's will being accomplished. On earth, not so much. The prayer is that we would do nothing individually, bless you, corporately, to get in the way of God's will, his plan, his purpose, his kingdom. We would not live our lives in such a way where it would hinder the will of God being accomplished. It's not hindered in heaven. 
The prayer is that we would live in such a way where we would not get in the way of God's will being done. Give us today our daily bread. By the way, I'm going through these quickly, okay? I'm not saying everything that could be said about breaking down the Lord's prayer. Give us today our daily bread. Many of us would do well to pray this, that section of the Lord's prayer every single day to serve to you as a reminder of who actually is providing for you. In the first century, literally, meals were day by day. Paychecks were day by day. We don't have a culture that works like that. I love, and um, this is Proverbs uh, chapter 30. It says this, Proverbs 30, starting at verse 7. Two things I ask of you, O Lord, do not refuse me before I die. Keep falsehood and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me my daily, only my daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. When it says, give us today our daily bread, this is the man or the woman who says, I know who my provider is. And it's not whatever company that pays, signs your paycheck. This might seem very simple, but even praying before a meal reminds you that your food is a gift from God. And I'm not talking about being a Pharisee and a legalist with it, but it's such a simple way, breakfast, meal, or breakfast, lunch, and dinner, snacks in between. God, thank you for providing me this meal. It's from you, and I give thanks for it. And it's not a prayer for next year, today. So many of us are so focused on what is six months out, 12 months out, two years out, that we miss the daily provisions of God. Give me today, not tomorrow, not next week, not six months, not 12 months, just God today, that I would see you as provider. Forgive us our debts as we also forgiven our debtors. Here's a good question. How often do you confess? Like if you were to think about just confession, how often do you confess? If you're thinking, well, I don't really confess that much, um, I'm going to pretty much guarantee it's not because you've got nothing to confess. Daily confession is very, very crucial, and this is what Jesus points out uh, in this prayer. Many of us confess like the big stuff, like when I really mess up, that's what I confess. When I look at something I shouldn't have on the internet, when I say something that I shouldn't have said to that person, when I cheated on that test, on that exam, uh, when I lie, when I, we create these things, I only confess the big stuff because ultimately that's what I care about. Sin is sin. God cares about what you deem big and what we deem small. Sin is sin, and sin was enough that he had to send a son. Confession daily because we sin daily and because it keeps our communion with God unhindered. When it says, forgive us our debts. When I've got stuff in my life that's not confessed, I've got a huge block between me and God. 
can't see him, I can't hear him. Why? Because I got sin. If I just confess it, God is gracious, merciful to forgive me my debt, my sin. He goes on to say, as I forgive, who? Our debtors. This is a pretty big deal, actually, because the question is, what do we forgive, debt or debtor? Jesus says, forgive debtor, not debt. Many of us would say, I forgive you for what you have done, or I forgive that thing that you did. But in our hearts, we hate, we're bitter, we're frustrated with that person. I can get over what you did to me. I can even forgive what you did to me. I can forgive your debt, but not you as a debtor. Jesus doesn't say forgive debts. He says forgive the debtor. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. If you're human, and I'm pretty sure all of us in here are, you will be tempted. There's a great verse in 1 Corinthians that says this. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. Have you ever said to yourself, man, I can't believe I did that again. Oh, gosh, I can't believe I said that again. Or I can't believe I looked at that again. You ever said that to yourself? You're almost shocked with your sin. I don't know why. God's not shocked. God's not like, oh my, where did that one come from? Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. None of us is above sin. Corinthians, if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. And I do want to make clear, Scripture makes clear that God doesn't tempt anyone. James chapter 1 says that when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. Tempt and test are one and the same, meaning the same word. God tests us to build faith, to build character. Satan, the enemy, the devil, tempts not to build character, not so that we can learn how to persevere and grow in our faith. He tempts so that we would do evil, where we would walk away from God, deny God, doubt God, sin against God. This prayer is that in our testing, we would not become an occasion for us to sin. That when we're tested by God to grow, to mature, we would not use that occasion of testing for the purposes of evil. This is a, a powerful prayer that Jesus models for us. This is not just to be said in repetition. I just wanted you to catch the heart. There is worship. There is kingdom. There is God's provision. There is God's grace. There is God's protection. This is the Lord's prayer. How we can connect with and commune with God. I told you earlier that motives are a really big deal to God. And something else that's a really big deal to God is called forgiveness. The two verses that follow the Lord's Prayer says this, If you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive 
your sins. Forgiveness is a really big deal to God. Not forgiving debts, but forgiving debtors. Okay? I just want to be clear, we do not receive forgiveness because we forgive. Okay? That's not why God forgives me. It's because he looked at me and said, oh, well, you forgave that person. You're cool. I'll forgive you now. We experience God's mercy. That's why we are forgiven is because God is merciful. But those who have tasted the grace, mercy, forgiveness of God cannot help but become a forgiving person. This is a really hard question. I came across uh, this quote um, by a, a pastor theologian uh, named Kent Hughes. He said this, if we will not forgive, we are not Christians. And I really wrestle with that. Is that true? If I don't forgive someone, does that really mean I'm not a Christian? He was pretty clear in his writings. If we will not forgive, we are not Christians. What do you think? Is that true? Jesus in Matthew 6, 14 and 15 lays down pretty clear not only how important forgiveness is, but it's evidence that we have been people who have been forgiven of God. Okay, I'm not talking about people who like struggle to forgive. Like I know there's a lot of people in here who have been hurt greatly. Your parents, your spouse, a friend, someone has done something, said something, harmed you physically, mentally, emotionally, relationally. And I know there's great wounding. So I'm not talking about the person who really wants to forgive, but is just struggling. That's not what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about the person who refuses to forgive and says, no, I will not forgive that person ever for what they've done. You have to ask yourself the question, is there something someone could do that is beyond forgiveness? Meaning, is there something someone could do to you, say to you, that you could ever honestly say, you know what? That's beyond forgiveness, dude. You're cut off. If you say yes to that question, that is the standard that would be used on you. Can you imagine if that was God's standard? Ask, is there anything that you could ever do that God would look at you and say, oh, you cross a line? No. There's nothing that I could do or say that God would not forgive me for where I wouldn't experience his grace, his mercy. How could we not do that to those? This is what Jesus is saying. Forgiveness is a huge deal. And to those who have been forgiven by God, they cannot help but forgive people. Not their actions, but the person. I'm guessing that you might be thinking of someone right now that you need to forgive. It may be really fresh or it may be a really old wound. If I do not forgive them, you're making a statement about where you are with God. It's a hard quote. If we will not forgive, we are not Christians. Once the grace of God, compassion, mercy, forgiveness of God has touched me, I could never look at a fellow image bearer of God and say, I will not forgive you because God will never do that for me. 
I don't know who it is, but motives matter to God, and so does forgiveness. I'm not going to uh, cover this, at least want to read it so you hear it, but there was three spiritual righteous acts that Jesus was trying to encourage people towards, giving to the needy, prayer, and then fasting. He says, when you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show men they are fasting. I tell you the truth, they have received the reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that it will not be obvious to men that you are fasting, but only to your father who is unseen and your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. What I love about this is this is the place in scripture where Jesus says, be a hypocrite. If you fast, like get dressed, put your finest clothes on, act as if one who is getting ready to go to a banquet that's going to be catered by Chipotle. (laughs) When you fast, fast as, as one who's actually preparing himself, herself for a great banquet. Don't walk around and be like, oh, my head hurts. This is terrible. I can't believe I have to fast. I don't like this. I'm miserable. And so everyone around you is like, what's wrong? Oh, I'm fasting today. (laughs) Really? Why? Because God told me to. Wow, because I'm really interested to know that God now. Motives matter, forgiveness matters. I pray that as we would grow as a community, we would be really generous. And our, 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 our left hand would have no clue what our right hand is doing because it's just such a way of life. I pray that as we grow individually and as a community, we would be awesome at bending the knee and praying to God And I pray that we would be excellent at enjoying and celebrating a fast, declaring to God, you are so much more important to me than this or this or this. Father God, I I pray that in all that's been said and read and talked about, God, ultimately in just the scripture that has been covered today, God, I pray that we would respond rightly and respond appropriately to you. God, my uh, just heart is heavy for uh, forgiveness, that if there is someone here that is really dying and struggling with forgiving things that have been done to us, God, you would give us eyes to see people as you see them, And we would be reminded of the great things that we have been forgiven of by you. God, we can't forgive people in the flesh. It's just got to be you at work in our lives. And God, I do have a picture of what D.L. Moody talked about in the shadows. Those who were bended and taking the posture of one who bends the knee. God, I pray that we will do that well. Not just when we gather like this, but 
just throughout our day. We would take that posture. We would commune. We would pray with you, talk with you, listen to you as our Father who is in heaven throughout the day. And God, I pray that your will would be done in our life. Your will would be done in this church. And we pray, God, that you would use us and this church to reach as many people as possible so that they would know of your great love. They would know of your great mercy and they would know of your great forgiveness. That they would know Jesus. As we uh, worship and uh, respond to God, if you're a Christian and you've made a commitment, confess Jesus as your God, please come and celebrate communion, giving thanks for what he's done, that your sins are completely forgiven now and forevermore because he went to a cross, paid the penalty, he shed his blood, making us right with God, giving us peace with God. So as you would come, take the bread and dip it in the wine or juice and say, Jesus, thank you. Thank you for forgiving me of my sins, my many sins. And if you're not a Christian, just know that God is Father and he is good, he is kind, he is compassionate, he is loving, and he made the first move to come to you, to meet you in sin so that you would experience his grace, mercy, and forgiveness and have a right relationship, not because you performed for him or lived a good, perfect life, but because Jesus did that. Ask Jesus, invite Jesus into your life to be your God. And as you do that, that's what makes you a Christian is Jesus, not what you do, but what he's done. And if you make that decision today, come and celebrate communion and give thanks to Jesus for what he's done.